The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we delve into the science of the nose. The middle sister to its siblings, vision and hearing, smell is often ignored when we talk about sensory experience. But today is not that day. Stay tuned to learn the ins and outs of how we smell and the language we use to talk about it. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Today we're talking with Dr. Asifa Majid, a professor of language, communication, and cultural cognition at Radboud University. She investigates the nature of categories and concepts in language, and most recently, the linguistics around our sense of smell. Dr. Majid, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to talk to you. Now, you co-authored a paper with a linguist and collaborator, Nicole Crisp, that was published online this month in the journal Current Biology, and the title is Hunter-Gatherer Olfaction is Special. So at the heart of this paper is the question of whether olfaction, or the sense of smell, and the way it's described in language is different for hunter-gatherers than it is for other groups, specifically groups whose lifestyles are more agricultural or farming-based. Uh, am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, we're trying to understand um, uh, what uh, underlies the differences uh, between uh, groups of people and their ability to talk about smells. Before we, we dive into the heart of it, uh, could mm -hmm. you contextualize this paper for us? It seems a follow-up to some research you published several years ago about um, a separate hunter-gatherer group called the Jahai. Yeah, so um, for centuries, really, we've had this presumption in the West that odors are impossible to talk about. So we can trace this back to um, such classical thinkers as Plato, who thought that there were no words for smells, that we only distinguish them according to whether they're good or bad smells. And this idea has really permeated um uh, all of our thinking. So people often speculate about how hard it is to talk about our um, the things that we're smelling. Um, so we uh, had previously uh, tried to test whether this presumption was in fact universally true. Uh, and to do that, we'd compared um, speakers of the language Jahai, who live in the Malay Peninsula, um, and uh, we had compared them to English speakers to see how they talked about smells and in comparison also to colours. Um, what we found in that previous study was that um, uh, it was in fact true that English speakers struggle to name smells when they couldn't see them. So while they agreed with one another in how to describe different shades of colours, when they had to describe even familiar smells like coffee or chocolate, um, they uh, couldn't identify the sources very well. And in fact, they were giving completely different descriptions from one another. Um, whereas for the Jahai, they were just as um, consistent in how they talked about smells as they were uh, in talking about colours. And when we uh, looked more closely, we found that, in fact, they had dedicated words to talk about different qualities of smells. So just like we have um, uh, basic words to talk about uh, colours, so red, green, blue, uh, the Jahai have... Um, uh, words that pick out different qualities of smell. So they're only used for smells. They're not used for taste or or objects. Um, and they uh, apply to different objects uh, in the world. So, for example, the word ba'us uh, describes um, a sort of musty sort of smell that you might find in old dwellings or cooked cabbage or cooked rice. So uh, these uh, words seem to pick out uh, an odour quality that apply across a range of objects uh, and there's around a dozen or so of these words in Jahai. So the Jahai were using these smell words to describe different uh, qualities in a consistent way and that's very unlike what we see in the West. That's interesting because so the way we use the word red it's in sort of abstract word there's nothing inherent in the name that defines you know things that are red so there is this what that word or those 12 words are like, they don't inherently, you know, represent what they smell like in terms of a source? 
That's right. So um, if I, you know, if we were going to list um, objects that were red, it could be anything from a fire engine to a tomato, a T-shirt. So um, it's picking out a quality, a visual quality. And in the same way, these smell words seem to be picking out a smell quality. So uh, le boot, for example, is uh, used for fragrant sorts of smells. So um, flowers, soap, um, a bear cat that smells a little bit like popcorn. Um, but it's a different uh, sort of smell from uh, jungos smells, which are fragrant smells that are more edible sorts of smells. So they would be cooked chicken, for example, would be a, um, the smell of cooked chicken would be a good example for that one. So... Um, there is a quality in common between these things, but the words themselves don't refer to any object. Right. And like I said, you can't use it for taste, so you can say, oh, this tastes jungos. It only refers to the smell. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So uh, this research is amazing, but it, it did pose some questions because you were comparing the Jahai speakers to English speakers, um, and the cultures are so different that it's really hard to pin down why they might be better at um, describing or detecting odors. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. So when we compare two very different groups like this, it's very hard to know what exactly underlies the difference. So we have, you know, speakers of a language spoken by millions of people. There's only around a thousand Jahai speakers uh, today. Um, we have, you know, English speakers living in urban centres, but also, you know, rural <laughs> lifestyle, whereas the Jahai are much more homogenous. So they're mostly uh, nomadic hunter-gatherers traditionally in their lifestyle. Um, we have English speakers are all literate, um, reading and writing, but the Jahai aren't. Um, so they differ in many different parameters. Um, so uh, if we want to really find out why... Uh, some languages have small words and others don't. It's hard to know just from this one comparison. And we don't know whether it's the English that are unusual and not having words or whether it's the Jahai that are, you, you know, unusual somehow in having developed a small vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And this issue is one of the reasons you conducted this most recent experiment, correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, there's different approaches one can take to answer the question of what underlies these differences. But what we tried to do was um, compare two related communities. So um, the Samatburi and the Semalai are both related to the Jahai. They live in similar environment in the Malay Peninsula. Uh, it's a tropical rainforest environment. Um, they speak related languages. So if the Jahai were like the Germans in this community, the Semalai and the Samatburi are like the French and Italians say. So they, they all are related to one another, but they're, um, the languages aren't mutually intelligible. Um, but the critical difference uh, in this study was that um, the Samatburi are like the Jahai in that they're both hunter-gatherer um, uh, they're both living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, uh, but the Semalai are um, horticulturalists, so they do small-scale farming, so they cut down a little bit of the forest in the Sweden and grow rice just for their own consumption. So um, the two groups differ uh, in their cultural uh, subsistence, um, but otherwise their environments are shared, they're speaking similar languages. So it controls for many of the parameters that might underlie the differences we found previously between English and Jahai. So what was the exact task that you gave them? The task is really simple. So we're working with um, uh we want to have a task that we can use with people uh, who might not necessarily have um, literacy, as we, uh, as I just described. So all they have to do is name colors and name smells. Um, so they're both um, relatively abstract. The colors are just um, standardized, uh, what are called Munsell chips. So we know exactly which hue we're giving to people. Uh, and the smells were um, sniffing sticks. So these are standardized way to give odors. So they're basically like a marker pen that have different odors inside them. So they're not attached to an object. People can't see where the odor is coming from. So they're just given these colors and smells and have to say what the smell is or what the color is. Okay. And what were your, your major findings, the differences between the two groups? 
So what we find is that the semi, the um, small-scale farmers, were just like the English speakers. So they um, agreed with one another on how to describe the colors, but they struggle to name the smells. Uh, whereas the, the Samatburi look just like the Jahai, so they find smells just as easy to talk about as colors. Okay, and I want to clarify this early on because there's a distinction. There, there's agreement between different people on, on what the smells are, so agreement in how they describe the smells, rather than an actual uh, potentially better sense of smell. Is that correct? Yeah, so in this study where focusing on older olfactory language because um, because of these um, claims that have been made about the way that language and olfaction hook up to one another uh, or the lack of ability to talk about smells, we did not test perception okay. so far. But, but obviously that's an um, interesting next question to ask. Yeah. So, so hypothetically, they, each group could be smelling the same exact thing. Uh, but it could be like, you know, when us English speakers, we smell something and we're like, oh, I really recognize the smell, but it's on the tip of my tongue. You know, what is that smell? So it's like we can perceive it potentially as well, but we may not be able to describe it because we have no language for it. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the last few years, there have been some uh, wonderful studies showing that our sense of smell, which is often much maligned <laughs> where people think that we you know where we don't have a good ability in fact the experimental research shows that we uh, have amazing noses we can discriminate trillions of odors uh, according to some counts um, we're able to follow um, a trail of chocolate scent across the field with our noses um, so we really do have uh, a remarkable olfactory sense um yeah, for English speakers, there seems to be some gap uh, that means that it's harder for us to talk about smells. So why would having a, a language for smell help hunter-gatherers specifically in their everyday life? So um, I think it's important to contextualize the... Um, olfaction in the broader sense so I think it it likely does have a role to play in their subsistence so um, in the especially in the tropical rainforest surrounding odors can give you a lot of information and sometimes even before you can see a thing you can smell it uh, so for people who are either you know tracking um, game or uh, looking for a particular kind of fruit it can be helpful to pay attention to that information but it's part of a wider network of um, um, beliefs and activities that are important for the Samatburi and Jahai um, beyond just the subsistence itself so for example the Samatburi and the Jahai believe that certain odors can make you sick and other odors can make you um, better. Um, they uh, have um, taboo against cooking some sorts of meats on the same fire. So in fact, they'll build two separate fires to cook the game, two different sorts of meat. Um, they uh, believe that this individuals have um, a smell soul and that if brother and sister sit too close together it's a kind of smell incest and so they monitor odors they monitor social odors other object odors it's part of their conscious awareness and so being able to communicate about that is important because olfaction underlies a number of their cultural activities that's amazing i, I mean the the fact that it the smell is, is, as you said, maligned in, in Western culture, potentially, compared to other, uh, other sensory modalities like, you know, sight and hearing, but uh, it seems to be valued in, in these cultures. Absolutely. Um, and in a sense, it's, it's not clear why we don't value our sense of smell more. So it's obviously important for us. We spend billions in the flavor and fragrance industry um, and people who have lost their sense of smell who suffer from anosmia um, 
report that, you know, food doesn't have the same pleasure anymore because they can't, much of our sense of uh, uh, flavor comes from our sense of smell. And so when they're not able to um, uh, use their noses in the same way, their pleasure of food goes, their social relationships also seem to suffer because they can't smell their loved ones in the same way, but also they start to worry about their own um, smells. So we know that smell is also important for us and yet it's not something that we're very reflective about it doesn't seem to be part of our conscious awareness in the same way and it's um definitely something that we don't communicate about uh to the same extent as uh the communities that we've been studying seem to yeah so it seems that uh we may not realize that smell is so important until we've lost it that's right so you mentioned that uh, the Samatbari have, you know, different um, different social cues from smells and, and that smells have all these different meanings for them. Uh, so we talked earlier about perception and, and this really poses a question about whether these cultural differences and how we talk about odors are associated with cultural differences in sensitivity to odors. So do you, I know we don't have any data on this yet, but what would you imagine? Do you think that hunter-gatherers have a stronger sense of smell? I think there it's it's possible. There are some interesting cross-cultural findings um, that have been published um, that show that, for example, that uh, Tsemane, who live in Bolivia, seem to have are better at detecting and discriminating odors than a comparable German group. Um and uh, in this uh, research, um, uh, it's been suggested that perhaps that's got something to do with the environment. So um, living in, uh, in an industrial world where there's much more pollution, uh, uh, the pollution affects our ability to smell. So perhaps in a more traditional environment where you're not being exposed to car fumes and other sorts of fumes, uh, the sense of smell might be better. So I think it's possible that there are differences across populations in perception, uh, but it also um, raises that question of how exactly environment and biology um, are connected to one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think, um, how would you, how would you test this in, in the groups that you've been working with if you wanted to? Um, there's a number of questions that um, are open for us I think so um, one could look at um, the ability just to detect an odor so how much of that odor do you need before you smell that something is there so that's quite low level perception in a way Um, but I think something that's quite exciting for uh, us to pursue is whether people across different communities uh, think about perceive odors in the same way Um, so um, do they discriminate odors in the same way? Do they think the same odors are pleasant or unpleasant? Um, so there's a number of different questions that um, uh, would be uh, exciting to investigate further. So really these odors could basically have different meanings to people based on the cultural relevance of them. I think both possibilities are exciting. So either perception is shared across people we we smell things in the same way and it's language that's different which means that we need to understand how language and perception connect or these effects are really go down deep and perception itself is um, underlyingly different and if that's the case then we would want to understand better what causes what you know how how do language culture environment how do these all interact so I think both possibilities are um, very exciting, and we we need just need the empirical data to be able to understand right. better how these things align. Uh, it is an interesting case where it's whatever whatever is the case and is true is going to be exciting and interesting. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, I I am curious though. I mean, there are, is a large body of literature on on expertise, visual expertise, mm-hmm. and and gustatory uh, taste with you know bird experts and and car experts and and sommeliers. So would you think that that smelling could be just a, if it, there is a perception, it would be a form of expertise that's learned or rather some sort of genetic, uh, genetic enhancement over years of 
the hunter-gatherer communities and being isolated from other communities. So I think at least as it concerns olfactory language, certainly practice seems to have a lot to do with it. So um, in one study, we've compared um, wine experts um, with uh, novices uh, in their ability to um, talk about the smells and flavors of wines versus just everyday smells and flavors. And uh, in that study, we found that um, wine experts were were indeed um, more consistent in how they talked about the smells and uh, flavors of of wines, but that didn't generalize to everyday flavors uh, and smells. So if we compared um, a wine expert's ability to name a banana smell or a chocolate smell to somebody who wasn't a wine expert, there was no difference. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that um, there's something about the specific practices that the wine experts are using, which is wine tasting, I think is the real place there so you know um doing blind tastings just talking with other people who are doing them what exactly are the aromas that are being picked up helps to tune in um the wine experts and also just conventionalize that vocabulary so that my personal experience and your personal experience are aligned and we know how we're using this vocabulary so i think language in that sense it's helpful for one's own thinking it helps make things more concrete and it enables you to keep them in mind but it's also a way for us to align our perceptions mm-hmm. um so kind of going back to the question that you asked about you know what's the purpose of communicating about these things it's a way for us to make sure that we're aligned in our experiences otherwise we're all in our own private worlds uh, experiencing mm-hmm. our own perceptual you know uh, um input so do you believe it is possible to disentangle the contributions of, of lifestyle, culture, environment, and language then to potential perception or whether it's just linguistic differences? I think we can definitely gain more insights than we have right now. So, you know, um, to the study that I was just describing um where the wine experts are a bit better, one could argue that, well, what makes a person a wine expert in the first place, perhaps there's a, they have some biological advantage in smell and that makes them interested in smell. And so they go on to become a wine expert. Um, so perhaps practice plays a limited role there. So you, you can in fact investigate that by taking people who, um, are not necessarily interested in the same way and training them up. Mm-hmm. Um, you can um, uh, test comparable people with different levels of expertise and see what role practice does play. So there's a number of different approaches um, that can be taken to make it an empirical question and not just speculation. Well, it's really interesting. And, and do you know what's next for you? Uh, I think um, the perception question that you asked is certainly something that's um, um, occupying my mind at the moment. Uh, I think to understand uh, how language and perception are coupled in this case would be very exciting. Are there any um, other major interesting things that you've been thinking about or have been occupying your mind that we didn't talk about? Um... Aside from the perception part of things, I, there is the connection between language and other aspects of thinking. Mm-hmm. So um, whether having olfactory language might have an influence on the way that we remember smells, for example. Um, so I think, uh, you know, one could ask whether people with an olfactory language are also better at remembering smells Mm -hmm. and whether the kind of asymmetry that we see between vision and smell in language uh, for English speakers and the similar, whether that's also reflected in other cognitive things like, like, like our abilities to remember. So I think that would be, um, I'd, I'd love for uh, more data on that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because because smell is definitely, compared to other senses, it has this uh, very strong attachment to memory. It seems to, you could smell something and it just places you 
somewhere that you haven't been in years, but you know where. Um, there's, there's, yeah, there's, uh, there's different aspects of, um, of memory, isn't there? So there's a specific odor that you smell. Was it this particular rose scent or was it a different kind of floral scent? Mm -hmm. And then there's a kind of episodic memory that you're alluding to. So, you know, the, the Proustian idea that a particular smell might take you back to, you know, your grandmother's house when you were little or, mm. um, so, um, there, there does seem to be a special connection between odors and these episodic memories. Um, and Maria Larsson from Stockholm University in Sweden has done some uh, very interesting work comparing uh, smell with other uh, sensory modalities to see um, how exactly these uh, odor memories are connected to autobiographical memories. But at the end of the day, even if we're transported back to grandma's house, it doesn't mean we can say what exactly we're smelling, does it? Uh, no, that's right. And <laughs> and, and perhaps that's part of the reason that it is able to do that. Yeah. Because we're connecting it, you know, to that type of memory instead of our conscious memories, uh, our, you know, our semantic memories. Dr. Majid, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your expertise in the language of the nose. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Asfa Majid's research, you can follow her on Twitter at Asfa Majid, that's A-S-I-F-A underscore Majid. Uh, to find that handle and links to her webpage, navigate to our website at scienceforthepeople.ci. Thanks. We'll be right back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jay Gottfried, a neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania, with joint faculty appointments in the Department of Neurology and Psychology. He joined recently as a Penn Integrates Knowledge University professor. His research investigates the neurobiology of our sense of smell and how smell is intertwined with memory, emotion, and perception. Dr. Gottfried, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm going to start, I'm going to get metaphysical on you. Uh, what is a smell? <laughs> Always the tough questions. <laughs> um, well, a, a smell is a chemical molecule um, which travels through the air and gets to our nose, activating our um, olfactory pathway. Um, one interesting thing about odor molecules is they have to be uh, volatile enough and light enough so that they can kind of rise through the air and make contact with our noses. Um, there's many molecules out there that are too heavy uh, for us even to smell because they don't kind of get off the ground. And in fact, probably that's probably one reason why, um, you know, animals like dogs and rodents uh, have such a good sense of smell because their noses are always down on the ground where they can pick up things that humans just aren't normally going to be trying to do. So if, if we just crawled more to where we needed to go, we might have a better sense of smell? Exactly, right? <laughs> um, there's actually some, some, there's some old, it's not really research, mm -hmm. observations about how, or really just speculations that one reason that the human sense of, sense of smell probably uh, isn't quite as refined as that of other animals is uh, when we learn to walk on two feet, our noses were suddenly no longer close to the ground. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, and we'll get to more of the differences between uh, our olfaction systems and other animals later. But once you mention the, the volatile chemicals get to the nose, uh, you mentioned they activate the olfactory pathway. So can you break down the olfactory pathway for us? Sure. So uh, really, the, the first step in this process um, by which we smell things is... Uh, when the odor molecules um, drift into our nose and contact kind of the very upper reaches 
of our nose, sort of an area way beyond where you could get a pencil. <laughs> um, so this is the area known as the olfactory epithelium. Uh, it has a mucus layer to keep it moist. And basically, when an odor molecule arrives at this mucus layer, it's quickly kind of absorbed through the mucus and binds to these um, receptor endings of olfactory sensory neurons. Um, there's a really cool uh, electron microscopy uh, photographs where people basically took pictures of the olfactory epithelium at like, I don't know, 500 to 2,000 times size. Uh, and it's just like a, it looks like a beautiful forest, um, with like these sea anemone kind of tentacle things, which are all of the surfaces that odors can bind to. So there's this incredible surface area, um, for odors to bind, uh, onto the olfactory sheet. Um, and probably accounts for why, you know, even the human nose can probably detect just, you know, uh, a dozen, uh, discrete molecules of one odor um i could put that differently basically you know we can we can detect certain odors at like parts per trillion um and i think the rich surface area available in the nose makes that possible so that's the first step um from there uh the axons kind of the conducting fibers leaving uh, the nose basically pass through tiny holes uh, in the skull, uh, this area of the skull is called the cribriform plate, and there's lots of little um, holes there for these thin olfactory nerve fibers to pass through, and they end up um, synapsing on uh, kind of the first goalpost, which is the olfactory bulb. And by synapsing, you mean connecting? Exactly, kind of creating a, an, ele- an electrical connection um, mm-hmm. between the sensory neurons in the nose and the kind of the first junction point uh, in the olfactory system of the brain. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that uh, all these tiny nerves are passing through delicate bone right at the base of the skull uh, has an important clinical implication because um, oftentimes if people are in a bad car accident and kind of jostle their brain, um, those olfactory nerves are so delicate, they can be severed. Hmm. Uh, so uh, smell loss is actually a pretty common consequence of traumatic brain injuries. Anyhow, so um, the first synapse is at the, the olfactory bulb. So that information goes to the olfactory bulb, um, where there's basically a handshake between the the kind of distant endings of the receptor neurons, and then the output of that um, now projects to the the next stage in the system, um, which is principally known as the piriform cortex, which is the major um, projection point uh, of the olfactory bulb. The olfactory bulb is a much older part of the brain, right? Well, so that gets into a complex question, but I, I do think that evolutionarily, the sense of smell is probably among the earliest senses to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of if we if we take a step back for a second, um, pretty much every species you could think of uses its uses a sense of smell in some way or other. So you could even imagine the earliest unicellular creatures, like an E. coli bacterium. Uh, there have been interesting bacteriology studies done on these these small critters showing that they have a, a cluster of olfactory chemoreceptor complexes at one end of the of the cell. Um, and what this means is it has a kind of polarity, sort of like a nose, so that it can sensibly uh, navigate its way through you know, the pond following concentration gradients in order to find uh, nutrients it needs and to get away from toxins such as its own waste products. Mm-hmm. So even in E. coli or, or some whatever bacterium, uh, there's a kind of primordial sense of smell allowing it to kind of approach things it needs and avoid things it's trying to 
get away from. Right. And so if you, if you trace this through, you know, the evolutionary hierarchy, uh, sense of smell is very important, um, for all sorts of kind of, kinds of, um, behavioral aspects, whether it's finding food, finding mates, um, uh, recognizing friends from foe, uh, avoiding various predator threats. So, uh, and what's cool about the sense of smell is it's a distant sense. So it really allows an organism to sense things from afar uh, and well before, you know, it's too late to make a move and like, get away from T-Rex or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you could smell things well before you could potentially hear them or see them? Right. Yeah. So, so you know, each of the senses evolved under slightly different pressures um, to accomplish different tasks. Um, but, you know, what you mentioned is a, a great example. Um, smells can defy physical barriers and physical obstacles. They can, you know, curve around hilltops and um, buildings um, so that you can smell things even if you can't see them. You were saying that there is something different about, about smells and and the way that they're processed. And I, I feel like we can we can tell this when we perceive certain things. Like if, you know, you smell something and it just completely transports you back to right. a time and place and you can see where you are and you remember where you are, um, you know, whether it's like, you know, a family member's home cooking or somewhere where you traveled. So that doesn't happen with visual and auditory cues, does it? Well... I, I tend to agree with you on all of that. And definitely when people describe these kind of flashbacks in time uh, to early childhood um, triggered by a smell, um, I've had that. I totally believe in that. I think it's been a little difficult to prove it, though, mm-hmm. um, just kind of, you know, in an experimental lab setting to prove that odors are more provocative than other stimuli. Um but, you know, I think it makes sense, but certainly, you know, there, there's, there, I'm sure there are plenty of examples where you hear a song and that transports you right back. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably if you look at certain photographs, right, that'll transport you back. So there, there is something, I think part of the reason it, it does seem so remarkable when an odor does that is because a lot of people generally don't really think about the sense of smell very much. They, they take it for granted. Even, even you know, traditional neuroscience research on the senses, you know, smell is always kind of the last one mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a certain kind of, it's not an active bias, but people just, it's not really on their radar. Right. Um, but, I, you know, certainly I know people who are very tuned into the sense of smell, and for them, it's a very intrinsic part of their human experience. So who do you know that's particularly tuned into their sense of smell? Um, me? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, I, so I think, first of all, traditionally, um, women who often had roles in the kitchen um, and uh, were, you know, much more often using perfume like there's a sensibility there um, about the sense of smell that is, you know, just much more prominent. Um, you know, there, there's a kind of, there's a fairly small literature, um, but, but very suggestive literature that um, maybe even biologically kind of at a, an innate level, women have a better sense of smell. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh I think anyone who needs to use their nose as part of their work life or personal life um, will will learn how to to improve their sense of smell. So whether it's you know a, a wine taster's um, wine sommelier, um, people in the food industry, people who work in perfumery or in kind of flavor and fragrance development. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for those people to do their job, there probably does have to be a certain amount of innate aptitude, but I also think there's a lot of plasticity and you can learn through experience to become a better smeller. 
which it sounds like maybe your interest in in smell has caused you to do, or have you always felt that you noticed smells more, and did that cause you to become a neuroscientist of smell? Well, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I do know that based on the photograph, when I was about six months old, um, I showed a very strong reaction to a certain baby food that my grandma was trying to feed me. Mm-hmm. So I've always, I've always been very tuned into smell. Hmm. Um, I, I guess you bring up this point though about, uh, over time, there may be people who have learned to have heightened senses of smell. Um, which kind of brings up a, a topic that I discussed with another guest on this episode, um, Asifa Majid. And so she, uh, and Nicole Crespe published a paper recently on hunter gatherers and right. how they have an, not an enhanced sense of smell, but have a, a language for smell where they're able to label smells, um, much more readily than similar people, um, in non hunter gatherer societies. Um, so we talked briefly about, you know, whether a language for smell could, eventually could it lead to an enhanced perception of smell um but there's no testing on that what do you think do you think hunter gatherers are more attuned to smells or just that they they they've learned this language and so they just are more aware of them or they actually can smell better well i i think that the jury's still out on a lot of those questions mm-hmm. um it's very hard to work with those populations and you know the work that Majid and others have done is really admirable um I think to what extent these reflect kind of innate processes that that their brains are endowed with or maybe have inherited over you know millennia uh, is a possibility but um, you know, as I was mentioning, I think experience counts for a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we did a study some years ago where we had two odors that smelled exactly the same. And in what's called a, basically a, a three-way forced choice test where you get the two odors. So you get two of one odor and one of the other odor. People are at chance. Right. Cause one in three, you'll, you'll get the right, you'll name the right odor. Mm-hmm. Um, but after we do Pavlovian conditioning where we pair a mild electric shock to the foot in combination with one of those two smells, what we find is that the subjects are now better able to distinguish those two smells that were formerly indistinguishable. Right. And we also, and we also find that in piriform cortex, uh, there's kind of been a qualitative um, change in the way that this information is coded uh, in form of a pattern. Mm-hmm. So um, what was interesting about that study is it shows that the human sense of smell um, can be highly plastic um, and that this correlates with um, kind of a, a regor- reorganization in the way that smells are being um, encoded in the brain. So that's sort of a long way of saying my my guess is that there are multiple factors that may be leading to the unique observations in the hunter-gatherers. Um, we've done a little bit of work ourselves on odor naming in basically healthy Western subjects um, and found that uh, or put forward the proposition that one reason it's so hard to name smells is again going back to the anatomy as i said before the olfactory system kind of arose uh, as a way to implement emotions memories behaviors um, but not so much to integrate with you know higher order decision making and and naming of smells and so on Mm -hmm. going back to the way that the olfactory system is set up to process memories and emotions and behaviors. Um, there just w- wasn't ever uh, an expedient way to map odor information onto those higher order cortical structures. Mm-hmm. So I think when someone tries to name a smell, they just it, it's just um, a much more 
uh, it, it's a, how can I put it? When they, when they, when people try and name a smell, the ability to integrate the smell information with that kind of rich assortment of lexical semantics, words and, and concepts, uh, is just a lot more sparse mm-hmm. than, for example, in the visual system where there are so many different opportunities for information to integrate and mix. Now, you mentioned um, that the smell arising uh, and having to do with the implementation of emotion. Can you um, elaborate on that for us? Well, you know, sort of as, as I was um, saying before, um, I view emotion as kind of the um, a, a phenomenon in which um, an animal is motivated to alter its behavior, whether to escape something in the case of fear, whether to attack something in the case of anger, um, whether to wrinkle your nose and, and slide away in the case of disgust. Um, all these emotions um, are very much uh, evoked by smells which again gets back to the point that the so-called function of a smell is to motivate behavior. Um, so so that's, that's how I kind of view the links between smells and emotion and behavior. It's kind of all part of the same arc. Well, I, I just have a couple of more questions just about smell in general, because you know, you mentioned earlier, it's like the ignored sense, right? Uh, right. We don't, we have a word, like a, an obvious word for lack of sight and lack of hearing. We got blind and deaf, deafness. And so there's no word that comes to mind to me for, you know, lack of smell. But it, are there clinical conditions where there are major smell deficits? Yeah, the, the general term which you can bill for is anosmia. Not, not, doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> Nosmia. <laughs> well, uh, you know, osmia means smell and okay. a, like an means none. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, anosmia, and it can come in, in different forms. It can be complete, which would be like, that would be complete anosmia. Or it could be hyposmia, where it's reduced. It could be hyperosmia, where it's enhanced. It could be um, phantosmia, where you're getting smells that aren't really there. Um, and, you know, this is another case where I think it's actually been a bit of a unfortunate situation for the millions of people who have smell disorders, um, because, you know, there just isn't a lot of appreciation or recognition that this takes place. Um, but it's more common than you would think. Uh, I would say a majority of patients who have had a traumatic will have some sort of smell impairment. Um, as we mentioned before, whether it's due to um, kind of shearing those olfactory nerves as, as they pass through the thin bone of the cribriform plate. Um, it could be from intusion to the base of the frontal lobe um, in, in what's known as kind of coup contra coup ricochet injury that takes place inside the head, um, where you could end up uh, injuring either the olfactory bulb or the overall frontal cortex or pink cortex. They're all kind of in the same general area where there's kind of bony shelves that can, can damage uh, those brain regions. So traumatic brain injury is a big one. Um, someone who has a red head cold uh, could end up losing their sense of smell mm-hmm. where there is sort of like so much inflammation and maybe as you were alluding to, um, so much damage to the um, stem cell neurons that are helping regenerate the olfactory epithelium, and, um, it just never comes back. Uh, so that's a that's another big one. Of course, there's also you know sinus disease, um, rhino sinus disease, which would be kind of nose and sinus, in which um, is probably at least more correctable than someone who's had a viral infection and lost their sense of smell or someone who has had TBI. Um, you know, in those instances, if you have a, you know, markedly deviated septum or a lesion, um, or nasal polyps, you know, those can be corrected. Right. So uh, it seems the difference between something that's wrong with 
I guess, the nose or sinus as opposed to the brain. Right. right. Although, again, remember the olfactory epithelium, which has all those receptor neurons, is in the nose, not the brain. Yeah, fine line. Yep. So, I, I, you mentioned phantom smells, and I have to ask more hallucinations that are smells? Yeah, yeah, you got that right. Um, there's not a whole lot of um, kind of formal clinical, clinical research done on this. Um, I'd say that uh, a well-documented phantom smell um, could arise from seizures. Sorry, a lot of seizures emerge from the temporal lobes which is where hippocampus and amygdala appear from. And so if you have um, irritated cortex from whatever reason, whether it was, I don't know, multiple sclerosis, uh, a very small stroke, maybe uh, an infection in that area of the brain, um, you can, or, uh, you know, what's really common among epilepsy patients with the medial temporal lobe epilepsy is something called mesial temporal sclerosis. Um, if that, you know, ends up triggering the smell pathway, you can get these phantom smells. Uh, and sometimes patients will come to attention uh, in the epilepsy clinic because they're complaining of phantom smells. But usually those are to more serious problems. Um, but, uh, you know, it's definitely not unheard of. And I think, I think seizures um, are probably the... Um, most clinically relevant tie-in to phantosmia. But there's a, there can be other kinds of phantom smells. I've seen some of these sorts of patients in the clinic where we never really have a good answer. Um, some of it could be due to kind of a person causing kind of micro-nerve um, demyelination and injury so that, again, there's kind of a aberrant regrowth of some of these nerves this could happen at the level of uh, the nose or even the tongue deficits in taste function as well. Um, I have to say there, there's also uh, definitely a population of people um, on medications um, or patients with psychiatric disease who also experience these phantom smells. Um, and those situations can be more difficult to treat. Before we move on, when I was looking into this, I saw one called parosmia. Is that correct? Yeah, parosmia is just a kind of a more generic term about kind of a uh, a qualitative change in the way they smell things. Okay, because what I read was that it seems like phantom smell unpleasant. It says typically a burning, rotting, fecal, or chemical smell. Right. Um, I would say the majority of cases of phantosmia are like that. Um, Parosmia per, is a little bit much in the sense that um, some of these people, uh, they'll smell some, like they'll smell strawberries and they'll think it smells bad. Okay. So it's not a hallucination. It's just... Right. Right. Okay. Well, you know, you just mentioned now the connection to the tongue, and, and you said you were a picky eater, and I know I was a picky eater. I always had to, like, plug my nose when I would eat things that I didn't like, you know? So, I mean, clearly there's some connection, even in, in experience, between smell and taste. Um, so what exactly is this connection in the brain? Well, it's a, it's an interesting question, which deserves hacking when I see patients with smell loss in the clinic, they're usually telling me that they have a problem with their taste. Mm. So there's a kind of semantic confusion about all of this. Um, you know, in my mind, smells happening in the nose, taste, which is salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and savory, is happening on the tongue at the taste buds. But the fact is, when we when we ingest the food and chew it, um, and we're getting all these different percepts from that food. So we're getting the olfactory components, we're getting the taste, salty, sweet, sour, bitter components, and we're getting the tactile and textural components. Um, we integrate information um, probably in areas like the insula and the orbofrontal cortex, um, but our, our kind of integrated perception tells us this, this food is in the mouth, um, and we don't really perceive 
like we don't perceive the first components of that food taking place in the nose um, when in fact it does. And you can easily test that just by pinching your nose closed when you're eating a food and then suddenly you'll lose all those nuances of the flavor, like whether it's strawberry or chocolate or banana, whatever the case. Um, so yeah, there, there is a lot of integration that goes on, um, probably in higher order brain areas. Um, so it's yeah. not an immediate, immediate thing that happens. Um, like the integration takes place later on. Well, we don't, we don't totally know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you say takes place later on, you know, I think we're still talking about on the, uh, on the millisecond time scale yeah. as opposed to seconds. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, like people who like wine sometimes still talk um, kind of the initial impression and then the, uh, like how a, a, a one sip of wine will evolve in time. It deepens. Where, right. You'll pick up certain notes on the tongue initially and then it will evolve. And that could reflect the fact that some of the heavier volatile chemical notes in the wine take longer to basically kind of vaporize and travel from your mouth through your nasopharynx and then through your nose. Well, and that brings us full circle to where we started. <laughs> Indeed. Before we wrap up, I have one more important question. What is your favorite smell? Well, as you'd see on my website, um, my favorite smell is shiso leaf, which is a member of the mint family and is used pretty commonly in Asian cuisine, especially Vietnamese and Japanese. Um, it just has a subtle aroma that I think is just really heavenly. Um, and I guess my number two would be curry leaf, oh. which obviously obviously is used in Indian cooking. And the fresh curry leaf also has to be loosely related to shiso. It also has mm -hmm. just this really kind of warm, wonderful fragrance to it. Yeah, I've smelled curry leaves, but I'll have to look into shiso next. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Well, that's all the time we have today. Dr. Gottfried, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise in the neural basis of smell. My pleasure. I hope this has been edifying. <laughs> If you're interested in learning more about Dr. J. Gottfried's research, you can navigate to his lab's website at hosting.med.upenn.edu slash Gottfried Lab. If you didn't catch that, you can find that link and more on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Until next time. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 